Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Oh, hi. Welcome to Basic Folk. This is a podcast where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. Right. That's this podcast. I'm your host, Cindy Howes. Hi. Thank you for joining me today. William Prince is our guest today. So excited to talk to him. William Prince grew up with the influence of his father's gospel music, Johnny Cash, Chris Christopherson, and a deep love of connecting with family. His parents kept music at the forefront of his young life with performing music around the house and through their DJ business. The house was filled with records and music, so William always felt a strong draw to include it in his life. He also felt a pressure to be successful and to be able to take care of his family, which led him to planning a career as a doctor. While that plan fell apart, music scooped him up. He focused on songwriting and performing for over a decade before he released his debut album, Earthly Days. Sadly, right before his album came out, his dad passed away. He also ended a serious relationship with the woman who would give birth to his son. All those major life events certainly impacted the writing for his latest album, Reliever. Even when he had been going through extremely hard times, William said, I had the faith for a better time. That's all hope really is, borrowing from a time that things will be better. This led him to be more vulnerable in his writing and in many ways put him on the path towards healing. William is fairly serious and soft-spoken in his answers, but he's so open about his experience. I especially appreciated his willingness to talk about becoming comfortable in his physical body. We also talk about the experience of growing up and attending high school on a reserve. His family moved from Selkirk, Manitoba, Canada to the Peguis First Nation when he was 12 years old. There he discovered all this family he had never known before. He has this lovely rhythm to his speech, and I totally meant to ask him about it, but completely forgot in the middle of the interview. All I can say is listen to the rhythm in the way he talks and enjoy. It's pretty sweet. And I'm pleased to mention for the first time, William talks about his next album that will be out right before the end of this godforsaken year, 2020. We're going to listen to a song from William Prince's latest album, Reliever, Wasted. And then we'll check out our conversation with William Prince on Basic Fall. I love staying up so late. I love getting a good night's sleep. I want to hear some old hymns tonight. I need to hear Christopher Wallace speak. I could go for some food right now. I could care less if we ever eat. I sure love just sitting around. Some days I'm never off my feet, but... Gotta love what you do, babe For that jingle jangle Cause we only get a few days Nobody makes it out of here anyway Put the shuffle in your shoes, babe That's the thing worth chasing Gotta love what you do, babe So now the day is wasted William Prince, I'm like pretty pumped to talk to you um, Huge fan of your music and also really enjoyed um, getting to know you through uh, write-ups and interviews that you've done. Um, so thanks so much for, for being here today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. You were born in Selkirk, Manitoba in Canada, and your family moved to the Peguis First Nation, I think, when you were in fifth grade or in Canada. It's grade five. Um, so maybe it was at a, you were 11 or 12 years old. Yeah, I was right around there. My, my family moved back to uh, the Peguis First Nation. I I didn't really know that I had a whole family there, but that's where my dad grew up, and yeah, that's where we 
finished off, uh, I guess, elementary years of school and got to know my family, got to know indigenous people, got to know what a reserve was and all those interesting things. Right. What was your living situation like before you moved and then what drove your family to relocate to Peguis? Is it okay just to call it Peguis? Yeah. I was about starting over being in a place with my family and getting to know that side of, I guess, heritage and uh, the whole family history of the prince name and where it comes from. Uh, my grandfather, Chief Peguis, uh, named all his sons princes, you know, after meeting Queen Victoria and finding out that uh, she called her sons princes. And in his adoption of Christianity, he became William King. That was his English name. And uh, the prince last name got passed down from there. So it was, it was interesting learning all that and then just being surrounded by um, family I never knew I had and played some hockey out there and finished school and uh, made my way back to Winnipeg uh, to start another journey. After you moved to Peguis, what was your home situation like um, there on the reserve and in what ways do you think your living conditions as a young person have affected you into adulthood? Oh, it was always pretty interesting at first. Um, we were together. That was the important thing. And we stayed in one of these smaller houses that didn't have any running water. So it was a bit of a challenge, you know, to haul water from the neighbor's house there and use an outhouse. And that's just an example of one of the houses on the reserve at the time. Pretty rough for, for the standards of Peguis anyway. And um, a lot of reserves have it harder where they have boil water advisories all the time, all year long. But I guess we were lucky in that sense that we had clean water to choose from. And yeah, we were always um, pretty tight-knit, always close together. Uh, we, My dad traded a lawnmower for our second house that we fixed up and built a porch. A lawnmower for an entire house? Yeah, they were about even on the scale of trades, though, because the house wasn't in very good shape, but mm. neither was the lawnmower, I guess. And, <laughs> <laughs> and it, it went a long way. So it was a small one-bedroom house that we all slept in the same room and eventually built uh, my sister and I's rooms on, and my dad and I put the porch on it with some help and became a more suitable house for a family of four. And it just always painted a picture of success and making it will one day be having more room, I guess. And that's what drove my aspirations of uh, becoming a doctor. You know, I wanted to go to school mm -hmm. and find a career that paid well so I could, you know, give back to my family in need. In reading about you, it seems like your heritage for a while was not a big part of your identity. Can you talk about the process of you learning about your family's history and ancestry and how your connection to that has evolved over the years? Uh, truthfully, it's evolving in real time. You know, I'm still learning uh, from my, my peers and the history of where I come from and the First Nations people of Canada and the injustices that they've faced and continue to face due to, you know, systemic racism, all these things that are there kind of in place to oppress and um, seeing my family suffer through residential schools and my mother being a part of the 60s scoop. It's like I'm almost learning the reasons to be outraged now, finally, in my Wait, adulthood. What's, what's the 60s scoop? The 60s scoop is when the government took a number of indigenous children and babies away from their parents and placed them in foster care and residential schools from different areas throughout Canada and mm. yeah so my my mom's family was completely displaced by the 60 scoop and they've felt the residual effects of that for a generation now uh, mm. some turned out worse than others and my mom's a shining example of a tough life doesn't have to make uh, you know a, I guess a tough cold person and I, I kind of marvel at her all the time. And the things that she got through, it really makes me recognize my privilege and how great we actually have it. So in my education, in my learning of um, the history 
of indigenous peoples, First Nations people in Canada. Uh, I'm slowly forming more of a bond with uh, the identity of being a First Nations person and where I come from. So uh, it's it's really exciting because it's all going to be addressed on the record I just finished making. That's exciting. Yeah. Cool. It's all pinned up and and just ready to go. Yeah. It's um, it's just the final touches being put on it right now. Uh, I'm calling it a a geographical sound imprint. You know, this is uh, it's going to be an album that really time warps us to a an interesting place in my family's history, my history, and a big part of uh, the culture that I grew up in, which was, funny enough, uh, kind of the line between the Christians and the cultural people on the reserve, because mm. that's a long-standing thing, because gospel music, um, I made an original, a half-original gospel album with some standards, and the feel on it I'm calling it, you know, 21st century Northern interlake country gospel. It's got this really great feel to it. That's some of the best stuff we've ever captured musically. So I'm really excited to touch on two birds with one stone in this kind of record. I'm, I'm, I'm speaking about the, the music I grew up listening to and also the aspect of being a first nations person in Canada. You mentioned, I've heard you talk about, um, Christian people versus the culture people. Can you talk a little bit more about what that means and the differences that they share? Well, they exist on very opposite ends of the spectrum. You see, Christianity uh, was a tool used in assimilating and colonizing the First Nations people of Canada to eliminate Indian identity, to rid the person of that First Nations pride, of that you know, culture and stuff to be more, as they say, civilized by the Christian way and the way that the teachings of Jesus and gospel and all those things. And so in singing gospel songs, you know, it's kind of a glimpse at a successful program in which I have been decolonized and assimilated to singing these songs through my dad, who was a preacher, Mm. traveled around. We learned, I learned music in funerals and wake services, which was really cool because well I guess not cool but (laughs) it was an interesting place to learn Mm -hmm. the joy of music when people are hurting and suffering and so my dad and I and my family we we had a place in singing for the community to relieve the community of their sorrow I guess and it was um one of the best times of my life uh because it was time spent with my dad when he was healthiest before he was sick before he passed away and you know, I would tune his guitars and we shared a very special thing when we played music together. Yeah, you often talk about the most important thing in your life is your family and your personal relationships with those people closest to you. And can you talk about how your parents work to instill that value, that value in your own family growing up? I think it just comes from not having very much. You you have each other. And so uh, the the thing to fall back on and to look to one another to pick each other up and uh, be each other's kind of bright light in those days where it's pretty mundane and it's a lot of days till payday and there's not much food in the fridge and all these different kind of humbling struggles you go through as a family. I, I, I realize now in my, my, uh, my older age that my dad was once a young man figuring out his family situation as well. And for me, I guess, focusing on that is you keep your your circle small and you stay there with you know who's important who you grow up around and it'll just kind of never let you down if you're if you're lucky enough some people don't have that luxury but I happen to have a great support system and you know my mom and my sister and those I care about and so that's that inspires the work to just um, put your best foot forward for not only myself but to make them proud your parents were really involved in music when you were a kid. It actually sounds like like a pretty cool household to grow up in musically. They had a DJ business. Your dad was a recording gospel musician. In thinking that um, when you were young, your parents are like setting the scene for your beliefs and interests. So you got an early start with all of this music happening around your house. How did they help you develop a love for music? 
that was just the thing is their their love for music became mine my dad was always singing he sang in talent shows as a young man back in his drinking days when you know the the best things were were those Johnny Cash recordings and Christopherson and all the greats you know those were songs of his time CCR John Fogarty and Willie Nelson and so naturally he'd be humming those tunes around the house and I would wonder what they were and he would kind of educate me in small segments and show me a song and check out this CD check out this record look at this old eight track you know this is how music was made back then and we had all the mediums in our home and uh, alpha alphabetical you know so you you see the stuff that my my mom loved and abba and the beach boys and credence clearwater and you just go uh through the alphabet picking albums that you want to explore so it was a neat resource to have a, a library of sound right in our house and uh, watching how they worked to bring music to people even in the form of djing entertaining weddings and different stuff things like that like it was it was a cause and it did good things so it just made me like music hearing it through good speakers at a young age <laughs> yeah i bet man i bet they had great speakers would you crank those in your house uh, f- from time to time we would yeah definitely um i always kind of reference how paul simon's graceland was was the first big record to hear through those speakers and thinking of my mom's love of Ann Murray and Whitney Houston, Celine Dion, all the great singers like that. And my dad was all about the troubadours and the singer songwriters. So a very eclectic mix and it doesn't hurt when the sound is good. Yeah, totally. Uh, so your dad, Ed Prince, that's his name? Yes. Yeah. I looked him up uh, on YouTube and his music is awesome. Um, he was a preacher and a musician. Um, your early musical experiences are rooted in the church. You had mentioned that earlier. Can you talk about how you correlate music and faith or spirituality together and how your dad's example played a role in that perspective? Well, I think the the relationship from the church uh, plays more into just my day-to-day of how now I'm spiritual and thankful and I, I try to practice gratitude all the time because that's honestly the system that's gotten me to being here today talking to you was was everything just kind of acknowledging the moments that I'm in and and having that uh, instilled has been great because it's an open dialogue with the cosmos I like to say I like to always give thanks for the little things in life and it, it, they build up to give you different breaks and different opportunities advantages and I've always been thankful of that and just, you know, that that part of it, um, faith in playing a, a way that I'll always remember the gospel songs I grew up on. And uh, I, I like to say that my dad was just as much in service of Jesus as he was Johnny Cash, you know, and it wasn't mm-hmm. like one of those, it wasn't a strict Christian home, you know, I could learn Metallica riffs on my overdrive guitar on the weekends and through the week and practice music. And that's all I wanted. I wanted to be a great musician. And uh, I really loved playing guitar with my dad and it just blossomed into my livelihood, took over Mm. my life. And like any young person learning that craft and working on your 10,000 hours to get great at something, it just took over. And so I'm thankful I had that. It helped me with every aspect of life and being studious and dedicated to something. And it uh, it makes for, I, I guess, a good drive in life to kind of have that. Your dad also taught you guitar and piano? Yeah, he was funny. You know, he'd find an old organ somewhere and he could just play. And uh, so watching that and uh, <laughs> playing with him, you know, trading licks and taking guitar lessons and uh, singing, always just kind of setting up and watching what he did and playing with that band. My mom was a singer too, so we'd all sing at home together and work on different stuff. So while we were in church on Sundays, I was learning off this old 20 Greatest Eagles riffs VHS, you know, <laughs> through the week kind of thing. So there, there was a great <laughs> Then you'd balance. bring it to church. <laughs> yeah, and I would go put those old Eagles riffs into <laughs> kind of a blend. That's so funny. Yeah question about um your dad teaching you guitar that sounds great like performing and playing music in the house with your mom and dad and your sister too 
Yep, she she plays yeah. and sings. Cool. How does the way you first learned from your dad, like the way that you learned how to play music from your dad still exist in your musicality? Well, there was a, a less is more approach back then that still kind of stays in place. I, I owe parts of that to to him and just, um, he was a big baritone singer. And so a lot of the work got done through his voice. And so sim- simple accompaniment wasn't really it was about the only thing that you needed. And so, and it's very um, humble in its presentation. There wasn't a lot of, you know, shredding on Sunday night and in the church to 12 people. And there's almost more musicians on stage than there are people in the the crowd, you know? And, and so on the weeks that I wouldn't go and I wouldn't order WWF pay-per-view wrestling on Sunday, some nights, that was a cool thing too. You know, I'd, I want to stay home and watch wrestling or something. <laughs> that was a young person's thing. And I, but all of a sudden it was like, yeah, I look forward to church for the community. Cause it breaks up. I say the, the kind of everyday existence of living on a reserve where not a lot happens. And, um, hmm. so it was good to see those people fellowship and gather together and feel joy and cry things out and, I guess it's where I learned to be open and emotional in that sense because those old timers would listen and play that music late into the night or the evening and get under the power, they'd say. That's where the spirit takes over. And it was it was special in that, you know, entire lifetimes. And you, you humble yourself before other people. There's a 70-year-old person in this talking about, in this church talking about their life. And you sit back and you listen and you reflect and... There's just a warmth to that that I think pads the soul and readies you for the everyday world of when, you know, a lot of negativity and different things can take away from that shine. I don't mean to be mm. in any way about it, but it's nice to lean into that good once in a while. I'm uh, I'm as much a sinner as anybody, you know, I, I, th- I think about that all the time, like taking that perspective it's not a perfect person singing perfect gospel songs it's a person dealing with life and i think that's what was most powerful about that music is that you felt safe in it i wanted to ask you a question about coming into your physical body and and I actually really appreciate it. You had this Instagram post where you were talking about how, you know, having pictures taken of you or having videos taken of you is like not comfortable. And uh, it's I so appreciate when people talk about the aspects of um, being kind of like uncomfortable in their own body. Like, you know, you, you're saying I can't and want let my hang up stop me from shining. I will learn to love myself more and more. I'm happy I've spent so much time in the other place. And I imagine the other place would be like just being uncomfortable in your physical body. And I think a lot of people can relate to that, myself included. Um, So how has your relationship to your body and your physical self evolved over time? And what steps maybe you've taken to, to love yourself like this? That's a great question. That might be the greatest question I've ever been asked on one of these things, and I'm I'm happy to share on it. It just comes from being in a place, a lonely place at first, where you know, growing up in Pegasus, I was um, I I've pretty much been the size I am since grade eight. You know, uh, well over six feet, well over three hundred pounds back then, and um, it was when I got to university and I started to kind of curve those things and think about, you know, I I was nervous to be on camera, nervous to, to have photos taken. And you chose something where you're going to be exposed to people doing that all the time. And it can stop you if you let that take over. And then as more people started to hear me for what I do, hear my voice, I realized that, you know, it doesn't matter what you look like when you're delivering a message with sincerity and authenticity, the way that I feel it's being received, those people over time have helped me um, embrace that I got something special going here and that it does good for others. And so that ultimately 
took over the insecurity of, ah, it doesn't matter if that photo looks bad or you're making a weird face. You know, that's just more of a young person's thing. I was insecure from not having a girlfriend. You feel like, oh, I didn't, I didn't date one of the five girls I'm not related to on the reserve. And, you know, they all have <laughs> hockey boyfriends and it just, you're, you're made to feel kind of like a loser in your own skin, especially being on the outer realm of being a heavier set kid and braces and a shaved head and big, terrible style and glasses, you know, and I, yeah, I, I had a sister who looked out for me and helped find clothes that fit you better and all those things. People that care about you helped curve my uh, self-esteem to where it is now. And I think about it less because I, I don't really encounter those things. All the stuff I was afraid of, I, I wanted to blend more into the background and just a, a tight leather jacket and in the darkness. But it's like, you know, your voice and stature, it's not every day you run into a man of my size, I guess, singing the songs that I sing. And there's a bit of um, a value to being a First Nations person. And it's like, whoa, I've, you seldom really come across entertainers like that. And it just built from there to be where now I feel confident. I feel loved. I, uh, I'm just in such a better place than I was when I was an insecure younger person. And that just comes from learning to appreciate yourself for what you're doing and building that confidence. So I had good people around me showing me and loving me properly so that I could eventually love myself. Totally. And it just seems like from like personal experience, like that kind of feeling like never seems to go away, but it's always, it, it seems like you've really done a lot of reflecting on how far you've come. And I think that's, that's super important. That's important too. And, in, in showing, you know, my, ch my, my children to be, I have one son, my son, Wyatt. And, uh, I think of my nieces, um, girls growing up and, uh, showing them the value. And like, I, I, it's really funny now we're in a period of reflecting on how we used to speak and how we used to address things. And it's just like superficial matters really stand out now in, in kind of an awkward way. It's like, no, m now more than ever, it's in embrace the differences between us, embrace that kind of unique freakish nature about yourself, whatever the unique thing mm -hmm. is that makes you, you to your skin, your look, your hair, whatever it is, love it, you know, because there is only one you and I'm happy, um, with who I am now. And I want to show a good example to those that what counts is on the inside because, mm. You know, I've, I've surrounded myself with people like that. And it's a, it's a great feeling that, uh, I, I, I pray relief for anybody going through that. You know, some people live with that their whole lives. I know some of the most beautiful people who you wouldn't believe some of their own personal hangups that stop them from having the best day possible or something. I'm like, man, are you kidding? You know, if I, yeah tall, handsome, beautiful, like you, whatever it was, you, we, we always think the grass is greener on the other side, but you really have no idea. Yeah. And then it just kind of comes back to that whole be kind because, you know, all of us are facing this great battle that we often know nothing about in the other. So why, why we got to put hangups on the way we look or our hair and different mm -hmm. stuff. Just be good humans. It's beautiful. Um, you, had planned a career as a doctor. And from what I can understand in reading about this experience, when you went to school for pre-med, it was really difficult for you. Unlike, in, it sounds like in high school, it was easy for you to excel. And it kind of sounds like this was the first time you really had to work very hard to keep your head above water in terms of grades. Um, and eventually you were drawn to pursue music but before that, I wanted to know what was it like to accept this world, that this world of like science and medicine was not for you? And how did you process that loss of becoming a doctor? Medicine always felt like the answer to the things I thought I needed to fix. I was kind of touching on how it would basically solve or do a lot of speaking for me in a way that the negative associations around being first nations and just growing up in a very modest environment, I guess I thought that that would become the thing to make me happy. And so I pursued that in hopes of, uh, one day I'll have enough money that I can just 
take care of these yearly problems of my parents and uh, maybe not have to pay rent one day or worry about a place to stay or groceries or gas or what's it going to be? Is it going to be the cable or the cell phone? And I know these are privilege matters to choose between because there's so much else going on, but ultimately it just had to do with um, me choosing what made me the happiest. And uh, there's going to be no use in me becoming a doctor if I wasn't happy. And so I realized that it's fun to say you're pre-med and do it, but for those that actually make it, there's a drive in them and their dedication that was just different than mine because mine was kind of always focused on music. Mine was always mm. wishing I could be somewhere else. And the stress reliever was, well, let's go write a song for a couple hours and then get back to this thing. I'm going to fail anyway. And it's kind of uh, shoveling snow while it, there's a blizzard and you're finding yourself incapacitated by it. And again, it just plays into that whole self-esteem thing where it's like, what am I doing here? I'm killing myself for something I don't even want. And ultimately yeah. I just said, I'm tired of doing bad. I'm tired of scraping by and, uh, I just need to get out of this. And so yeah, when science came to an end, bachelor of science, I was going for a concentrated four year degree in microbiology because it looks better to the med school when you apply with your MCAT and write your entrance exam and specialize a little bit more. I had all these plans. My volunteer mm. hours were there. I had it all, but I just, um, I didn't get in my first time, which is very commonplace for trying. And so it was just, yeah, I need a break. I want to figure something out, work a job for a little while, just focus on my music or just not focus on school. That's what it was. I didn't know what I was going to do. I just like, I figured as long as I keep the lights on, it's better than this panic I'm always in where I'm drowning and feeling like I'm not in the right place. Yeah. And so once I finally embraced that idea, the music just started to happen better and more naturally and found myself where I am now, I guess, long story short. Pegwis also has a radio station, First Nations Community Radio Station, CJFN-FM 102.7. That's right. Is that right? Yeah. That's right. Country Rock Radio 102.7 FM. <laughs> Were you the morning DJ? I was, yeah. Oh, my gosh. I want to know. I, I want to I know about this station. Um, like, it's a country radio station, but what does this station mean to the community? And also, you were the morning DJ. How did that role shape a new perspective on sharing and connecting people with music? And then I also want to hear your crazy DJ stories. Well, I, I worked for a radio station in the city for a number of years uh, through NCI FM and uh, the Native Communications Network. So they're a, a non-profit um, CanCon station that sheds light on a lot of indigenous music throughout Canada. And they're syndicated through eight major stations and throughout numerous channels on Sirius and all the other satellite kind of radio stations. So, um, you know, working at the Pegasus radio station really was, uh, again, another act of humbling. My, uh, son's mother and I went our separate ways just a couple weeks after finding out she was pregnant and suddenly I was without a place to live. And I went back home to, to Pegwis and I stayed there with my mom for almost a year and I had to do something with my time because I was in terrible pain. I was, you know, upset and scared and worried, not knowing what's going to happen and wishing I could be back and near my son and who's just growing, you know, so it was a quiet time in my life and a huge reflection period. And I ended up uh, taking a job because they needed help at the station. So I went there and it was quite, you know, uh, it was all over. There was no real structure. It was just, uh, <laughs> hit the random button, let it play. And then there was community bulletin once in a while. So I took pride in cleaning it up and, you know, bringing it together in my own way and kind of mimicking my morning show from when I was working in Winnipeg. And so I'd have real commercials. Um, I sought out advertising from different businesses 
uh, shared that. And then we made commercials. And the, the other guy that worked there, I was always working with him to, come on, we got something special here. We got something great. Um, we can, we can make this great for the community. And so I would set music for a few hours and, you know, good morning, do the traffic report for the one highway through the reserve and just different things like that and making the community announcements and, uh, playing music made me happy to play modern country music, classic country music. And then there'd be a bit of a rock hour and then a dance hour over the lunch. And one of my favorite things to do was, you know, 10 o'clock at night when nobody's there, go in there and pick three hours of songs I love, turn on the radio and drive around the reserve. It's how I <laughs> kept my mind occupied when I was kind of going stir crazy with nowhere to go. I wasn't really doing a whole lot of music. It was a couple gigs a month for very modest pay while waiting for my son to be born, trying to figure out what was going to happen. And yeah, that all worked itself out in that way. And it was just right at the darkest when things started to turn and I was getting geared up for uh, him to be born. I just released this album. It got nominated for some awards in Western Canada and eventually led me to the Junos. And man, it really turned things around for me. Seems like that radio station kind of plays an important role in such a dark period of time. It's like, it's nice to, to have something to hold on to and so like during so much uncertainty. Of course, it was it was something I could control. I I couldn't control much. I and I thought, well, at least I can play some good music for everybody. And it was really, you know, it was a, a lift to my spirits because all of a sudden people are noticing, wow, the radio, radio sounds way different. And you know, Will sounds great on there, and the whole community I grew up with, and again was kind of an outsider because we moved there late. But to be embraced and loved by the community, not only for my you know, humble accolades at that point in time. This is back in 2000, uh, would have been 15, just the beginning of mm -hmm. 2016. And, uh, I really needed that pat on the back of the time. So mm. I could set the radio and people would enjoy it for the day and really enjoy the stories and news, read the news in the morning and, Hey, doing a great job. And I was like, yeah, well, I feel like my whole life's falling apart. The community thinks I'm doing pretty good. So I really needed it at the time. Mm. It took about 10 years to create your debut album. Um, and it sounds like that 10 years was filled with a couple of misfires and, you know, of course, self-growth. And you said, I'm glad now that it didn't work out back then. I don't think the record I made at 20 would have been the record I made at 29. And in hearing that, like, there's some serious wisdom in that statement and I'm wondering, like, in this situation and other difficult situations in your life, how do you, like, where where do you find that wisdom in the moment? Like, are you receptive to, to wisdom or does it, does the time have to pass before you can be like, oh, there's a, that, that was a thing. I think with age comes um, the acceptance of those things. My, my mom and dad were always great in having that, that dialogue of passing on their perspectives, not in a way to try and necessarily fix it, but to just open your mind to the possibilities. Um, once I allowed myself really to start looking at things that don't go your way as signs of really not hindering you, but maybe just readying you in a different way, you know, the, you can let disappointment tear you apart and be the thing you wake up to and you can't even lift your head up through it. You know, that's, that's the life of living on a reserve. Truthfully, a lot of people struggle. Um, it exists, it exists in the city. It exists in ghettos across North America of, of any varying degree, people of low people that are coming from low income neighborhoods that are struggling, living in these conditions. So once I started to embrace that, you know, maybe these aren't necessarily failures. They're just re they're just adjustments, alignments, and, um, trying to put the best positive spin on whatever's not working out. So it's remaining open to that dialogue. There's so much power in listening and gathering other people's perspective. And I owe a lot of that to the friendship I had with my parents and very various people over time my closest friends scott nolan my producer very good friend having these places to exchange those ideas that you can form a different perspective 
on mm. what's going on. Yeah, I wanted to ask about Scott. He seems like such a good friend for you. Uh, he's a singer-songwriter. He produced Earthly Days in 2015, and he also co-produced Reliever, which is your latest record that Dave Cobb also produced. Um, so it sounds like working with Scott and working with such a good friend that you completely trust and who like loves your music and really believes in your music, it completely changed the way you feel about recording music? Yeah, um, for a long time, I was trying to record under the gun in a sense where you work up enough money to pay for this exact many minutes of studio time and not a minute more and people you know, weren't really there to produce and work. And I started to make songs now you know, with my friend who's a songwriter and the biggest thing is to serve the song. And so, um, he really showed me that and how to refine my performance and just watching what he does. Me being a, a big fan of his songs in general, his performance, the way he carries himself. And it was something I wanted to align myself with, um, because I saw wanting to be more of that. I thought he was great in, in all aspects of who he is as a performer and a writer. And really, he was kind of my first friend and look into the Winnipeg music scene because Scott's been here and a part of it for some time and has written great songs that have been covered by Hayes Carl and Mary Gaucher and all those greats of Americana. And um, he's just a very special individual. He has a great ear for things and he's been kind enough to help and educate me and how I take in music that way. So you mentioned um, a couple of things that happened right before Earthly Days came out. Your dad died, your son was born, and then your long-term relationship dissolved. Um, and living through those experiences laid out the foundation for the themes on the next record. So I'm in in hearing about that. It it was it sounds like it was such a hard, hard, hard time, and also somewhat joyful that time of transition and in that time you remarked that i had the faith for a better time um, that's all hope really is borrowing from a time that things will be better better it allowed me to be more open vulnerable with the subject matter in writing the songs i'm wondering about how your sense of optimism came into play like if you are an optimistic person and when you're in a crisis like that Optimism can sometimes be like misconstrued as being like naive. So, I mean, when I'm in a, a crisis myself, I want to be optimistic. But then there's also such a fine, fine line of, of walking it between optimism and um, naiv naivety. It's not an easy word to say. Yeah, you know, I think that goes back to again, how do we live with this circumstance? I've I've never really been in that many short crises, uh, overnight solving things. You know, usually you get the news and have to live with it for a while. So that was just a way of trying to put a, a spin on what you can't control because ultimately it just helps with dealing with that day-to-day -day happiness and joy. Why rob yourself of those things? You know, worrying is a rocking chair. It gives you something to do, but it doesn't get you anywhere. And it's one, <laughs> it's one of those things. So to kind of hold on That's to the, great. to hold on to the hope for some kind of better day. Like I say, I was trying to do myself a favor so that when the time came, I, I wouldn't have to be singing in real time anymore about something that's past. Rather, it's mm. like, I'm going to take my future reflection because I've survived every other hard thing until now. I think the chances are pretty good. I'll make it through this one as well. And so borrowing from your future happiness, so to say, to pull you through, um, I, I was big on that because it's all I had. I thought, you know, I, I just got to be patient. I got to wait for the right time to come. And I think my songs will take me to a different place. And I think I have something to say and I believe in that. And um, that's, that's what led to making Reliever in the sense that I, I was kind of talking about it with my partner and... Uh, Alicia and I were discussing how there's a lot of almost mantra on Reliever because I would find these little hooks in the songs or different 
things that would be repeated. You know, I've never been so lost. Once I found that one, I said it over and over in my mind, kind of like a keep calm, carry on, you know, water off a duck's back. It's okay. So these songs mm. kind of became that mantra for a better time. And, you know, thinking how my son, you know, that's all I'll ever become that idea of any day that I'm with him or he's around and just having him in my life, it already puts me at a certain level of joy and happiness and gratitude now. And it's working on that time when I'm away from him and how his, his accomplishments, his life, his, his place in this world, I feel like I have a big responsibility in helping that become something. And so his successes are mine. So even if I'm done with this old vessel and I'm, yeah, yeah, we've had enough struggle. I want my kids, I want my children to have what I didn't have. I think that's the dream and hope of every great parent is that they wish that for their children better than they had and that you can one day become useless to your children, that they're so okay in the world handling real life that you can take a step back. And the hope is that your children don't want to be away from you. I don't want my kids slamming the door at 18 to leave and he doesn't even have to if we live in a big house and he's going to university and say yeah it's different you know save some money get your future rolling the things that i never had the heads up on the world runs on credit it only matters what's down on paper save your money and do these things so that one day life is easier for you you're not struggling when you reach your mid-30s and say ah this is this is what uh they were working on while i was not really sure of what I was doing. It's something I had to correct later in life. I don't want to close that gap for my children in the future so that they do have that privilege and advantage in life to just get the basics mm. taken care of. Did your dad get a chance to meet Wyatt? No. Mm. He never got to hear the record either. You know, he was my biggest fan and I would show him these songs on my iPhone or in person. And if there was one, one ear I wanted to hear earthly days, it was him, but he passed away just a couple months before it came out. How does having a son make you reflect on your relationship with your dad? And I, I, you've talked about this a few times, like aspects of your relationship with your dad that you're working to foster with your son. Well, some of the things I want to take, um, the highlights are the friendship we had, the openness. I was never scared to talk to my dad about anything. I was never scared to, to hug and be affectionate with my father, you know, taking away that toxic male energy of we don't show emotion we don't do these kinds of things those are hindrances in your development and I want to pass that on I've always loved that about my my dad and I's relationship but it's now in the 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 time after since he's been gone that I I learn more of who he was as just a man and then you know there's things that have been passed down um, in terms of temper and patience, things that I want to change in the next generation for, for my son. You know, he, he's only doing what he was taught from his father, you know? So he grew up in a different era where mentalities and, uh, different things like that, just about humans in general was totally different. And so I can't blame him for some of his rough edges and how, I feel like he took a little longer to figure things out too for himself. He was, he was a dad at 17 and thrown into the real world with no education and not the same amount of talent at that time that I have now to, to help me in life. So he did hard labor and worked hard to feed children all his life. And so it's not the easiest. Uh, I, I wouldn't imagine to be, you know, sunshine and roses all the time. So it's nice to see that and talk to my mom about, oh yeah, we would stress about bills and we would fight in the car when your kids weren't listening and all those real things, you know, that make a, <laughs> that make a marriage, make a partnership, real life. Yeah. Like it's fascinating to learn how much they loved each other in spite of their challenges. And yeah. because of that, it inspires me with my partner and who I want to be as a family man one day. I'm I, I, I process that all the time being with somebody always, but like I say, I'm in a healthy, loving relationship now, somebody who helps me and takes care of Wyatt and joins in on all the fun and sings in the band. And at the end of the day is my best friend. You know, I, I'm lucky to be locked down during the pandemic with somebody I care about and who is thoughtful and kind and 
So all those different things make the measure of a man, and I want to pass that on, and the best thing is example, because if Wyatt sees me huffing and puffing and getting upset over things, you know, they say you can measure the size of a man by the size of the thing that upsets him, and I want to kind of take that into consideration at all times, and we're in a very privileged place right now. We live a good life in comparison to those I know have come and gone. And, um, so it's just reflecting on that every day and passing that down. I hope you can always talk to me. I hope my son feels like I'm a friend. Uh, my favorite song on the new record is Wasted. And you wrote that for Wyatt, kind of like returning the favor to him because you always felt so supported by your parents. Um, it's such a great song and great backstory. And it also really makes me like laugh out loud. Can you talk about inserting humor into a song and I think I read that your dad would try to encourage you to be funny <laughs> oh yeah well he was a, a joker too that's a that's a beautiful thing in the, the First Nations community is humor and levity are, are often you know uh, there with a lot of people and that's that's one of our stronger features I love that the lighthearted joking nature of, of my people and my family and um, it is, it is kind of a thing. It's a thing I learned after is very John Prine, you know, after I grew up and started to listen to him more and see, oh yeah, he was, he was a humor writer and same with Christofferson painting pictures that are just like, oh man, you picture this old sap on a bar stool is just pathetic and can't help him do anything, but you still cheer for him at the end of some song, you know, and I think of Tom T. Hall, Tom T. Hall used to paint those funny songs like that too. And all those greats. And so it's, uh, it's just adding a bit of my own thing. I'm, I'm a huge fan of stand-up comedy of, of all things funny. I, I sound pretty miserable, but I'm actually, you know, I like, I like laughing and I, I, I like those lighthearted things. And who, who do you like for comedians? Oh, I'm all over the place. I, uh, the, the latest Dave Chappelle comeback and, and all those things I've always been based in and that kind of stuff. I, I grew up watching a program called Just for Laughs. It's the annual comedy festival here in Canada, and it features a number of great, uh, great comedians. Saw John Mulaney in concert. Um, oh, geez, it goes all over the map. I used to love like Maria Bamford back in the day, Kathleen Madigan, mm. um, some that have come and gone on the accepted list. I guess it's that's a that's another tough conversation to have. But mm. yeah, I used to admire. All, all different kinds of comedy. And the greats, too. I think like the Chris Farley influence, a big man making people laugh, entertaining people. You know, I, mm. I think of that, like the John Candies, and I always kind of identified with them and why I feel like John Goodman, you know, in different, different mm. aspects of life. And so, yeah, I, I'm always for a good chuckle and a smart written joke, and I think it just kind of shows in there. If I can, if I can inject a bit of humor because it comes from doing it in real time and making an audience laugh in a theater full of people. And I tried this new song and every time this line gets a laugh and like, that's a good thing to have. I think that's a, a beautiful thing to incorporate into music. It's a good shot of, uh, endorphins. Yeah. My stuff's, you. my yeah. stuff can be pretty heavy and serious sometimes melancholy, all those things, but it's never without hope and uh, humor can kind of break that and change that, that kind of taste mm -hmm. in a show once in a while. Awesome. Um, well, William Prince, we're going to do something kind of silly. Oh, sure. What we do on this podcast, it is called The Lightning Round. Brilliant. Um, where you need to answer questions about yourself. Okay. But not like we have been doing, which has been really deep and thoughtful. This is like pretty surface level okay. questions. <laughs> Here we go. What is the first song you learned on the guitar? Oh man, an old gospel song called uh, "When He Cometh," and uh, I think uh, some Metallica song probably in that that era too. Back to back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Batman or Superman? Batman. What is your karaoke song? I really don't like karaoke, but uh, I like singing "Song Sung Blue" by Neil Diamond. I love that. Dogs or cats or something else? Uh, dogs. Definitely, yep. What is your coffee order? 
Uh, I'm eventually making my way to being just a black coffee drinker. Right now I have the slightest, hardly even noticeable amount of cream in it. So pretty much black coffee. Nice. First album you bought with your own money? Oh, I'd say Our Lady Peace, Clumsy. That's a good one. I actually read that somewhere, and I had that CD, and it was amazing. Great, yeah. It's like the, uh, what was the hit? Life's Superman's a Subway. Superman's dead. Superman's, Superman's dead. dead. Yeah. Because Batman killed him. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if you remember <laughs> if Columbia House was a thing where you were, but you could get 10 CDs for a penny and never pay for them, and then, yeah, drive that company out of business. So. Yeah. yeah. The, I, so there are certain things in this podcast that come up that are, are really entertaining for me to talk about. Summer Camp and Columbia House. Nice. <laughs> to hear oh, like, everyone's experiences. I never did it because it seemed like a scam to me, but I did like those stamps that they yeah, would send you of the albums. Toss them in the envelope. Yeah. What was your first concert? Corey Hart. I wear my sunglasses at night. Yeah, funny thing. <laughs> My mom took me to that concert, and during the first song, my real glasses broke. And I just so happened to have an extra pair in the car, because that's how much of a cool guy I was at the time. Were they sunglasses? Nope. Or regular glasses? Regular seeing glasses. (laughs) Oh, that does sound cool. Um, What was the last book you read? Uh, I've been reading Neil Young's latest book about the Pono music player, that one. And I just started on Buffy St. Marie's biography by Andrea Warner. Cool. Dream collaboration. Oh, man, that's a tough one. I think it would be a duet of some sort. Oh, oh no, I don't want to take long and stutter on this answer forever. (laughs) I'd work with Mary. I'd like to try write a song with Mary Gaucher sometime. That'd be fun. Why not? That seems obtainable. Yeah, I think that's in the in the realm of possibility. Totally. That would be great. Mary's the best. Uh, flying or invisibility? Flying. Definitely. Star Trek or Star Wars? Uh, I wasn't big on either, but I lean a little more Star Wars because I know more about Star Wars, I guess. Where is the most beautiful place you've ever visited? This is the final question. Make it count. Oh, geez. Um... I've been to so many beautiful places. I I really enjoyed the Shetland Islands. I guess kind of Scotlandish. Uh, it's either that, or you know what? I, I stood at the Twelve Apostles in Australia. I'm not sure if they're all still standing still, but um, hmm. I'd say toss up between those two. I can't pick just one. Well, well, that's fine. We'll accept two. Thank you. Two. The lightning round. That's it. We did it. Good job. You <laughs> did you. okay. That was fun. Yeah. Thank you so much for uh, doing the lightning round, answering all my questions. Uh, it's just such a pleasure to speak with you. And uh, do, do you have any details about like when we might expect the next project? Uh, 2020 for sure. I'd say check back September. I have it all here. I want to say everything. I want to play songs from it and send you them and do all those great things. It's just, uh, there's the right announcement needs to be made. It's no one, truthfully, nobody knows this is happening. This is the first real chatter about it right now. So, um, it's going to be something different. Like I say, it's, uh, it's a geographical sound imprint. I'm taking songs and musical stylings from the area I grew up in when I was first learning music and I've, you know, placed it in a way that it sounds like me in the band. So I'm really, really excited. Sounds like it could also be a thesis paper. It's going to be great. You know, it's not far off. Like seriously, check back in the next uh, month and a bit. All right, great. Well, I'll talk to you next week. Yes. About that. (laughs) And uh, yeah, thanks again. This has been really awesome having you on. I appreciate it so much. Oh, thank you. Absolutely. My pleasure. Anytime. Basic Folk is produced by Adam Corey and Laura McCarthy, with Adam taking the realm this week. Our business manager is Lindsay Myers. Our music is done by Alex Stanton of Townspeople. I'm your host, Cindy Howes, and thanks so much for listening to this podcast. If you liked what you heard, 
Uh, If you enjoyed listening to William Prince and you never heard of his music before, I encourage you to go purchase his music, a physical copy of his music or a download, what have you. Uh, These are strange times and we need to support the artists and musicians that we care about. That is my plea for you. If you want any more information about this podcast, uh, you can go to my website, cindyhouse.net. We have some show notes up about this and all episodes. This is the 80th episode of Basic Folk, so you can really you can really dig in, spend some good time there. I appreciate you listening, and we'll talk to you later. Okay, bye. Bye.